0: morning. Uh, As Roy has said and read, we are up to Genesis 19 in our journey into the unknown series with Abraham. But, and having just listened to it, I'm sure you'll agree that this has got to be one of the darkest and the most miserable chapters in the entire Bible. The content is shocking. Uh, If ever a Sunday morning sermon required a Certificate 15 rating, Uh, This is it, not because I intend to be offensive, nor do I intend to be inappropriate, but I say this because these 38 verses of sacred text are deeply disturbing. As narrative story, it's stomach-churning material that may and does upset lots of people, but I'm not going to try to sanitize it. I'm not going to gloss over the horror of it. And so this this may get a little uncomfortable. But as we trek our way through the various sordid scenes, I am going to attempt to make connections. I'm going to attempt to draw out some challenges for us to consider. Challenges and connections that, if you have been travelling with us on this journey, then they're going to be familiar to you, but I hope they're not going to be too repetitive. Genesis 19 is the story of Solomon Gomorrah's destruction. But the central character in these scenes is Abraham's nephew, Lot. And at some stage during his lifetime, we know that Lot entered into a covenant relationship with Almighty God. Because in 2 Peter 2.7, we read that Lot was a righteous man. But as we've already discovered, and what we're going to discover here again, is that Lot turns out to be a righteous man who mixed it up with the world. A righteous man who compromised his faith. Lot made so many poor choices. And I want to suggest this morning that he stands as a warning to every Christian about the dangers of chameleon Christianity, where you just blend in, you conform where we become tasteless salt and hidden light. Rarely making a difference. Rarely taking a stand for godliness, for holiness and for truth. Back in chapter 13, you'll remember that Lot gets to choose where to live. And so, after looking across the lush plain of Jordan, which reminds him of Egypt, he opts for there and even though the area was morally bankrupt lot reckons you know i can i can live there i can survive there and so he moves to sodom or at least he heads for sodom and initially according to chapter 13 he pitches his tent near that place but one chapter later in chapter 14 you discover that lot's now living in sodom that he's gone from the margins to the center that he's gone from a place of flirting with the world to a full-on love affair with it. And that's the danger of compromise. You take your eyes off God, and you begin to look around, and you think, you know, somehow I'm missing out. That everybody over there, everybody out there, everybody down there is living it up, and so we edge towards that location. Initially, You hang round the fringes. You dip in a little. Nothing too serious, but before you know it, you've taken up residence there. You're in. And although in the world isn't the issue, in the world isn't a problem, the danger comes from being far too off the world for your own good. And that's a pretty fair reflection of Lot's situation. He's in and he's off. So as we trace the events of chapter 19, we begin the story where two angels arrive at Sodom. Now, Abraham had three visitors in chapter 18, Lot gets two. And they meet Lot sitting in the gateway of the city, and that's significant, that's really important, that's actually incredibly interesting because it implies, it reveals that Lot has not only moved into Sodom, but he's become a city father Because it was the city fathers who sat at the gate. It was only men of standing who were there. But unlike Daniel or Joseph, who also had key positions in similar contexts, Lot was not an influencer for good, nor for God. And when it comes to compromise, you can't be. Now whenever Lot sees these two men, he recognises their importance, and we know that he recognises their importance, because the first thing he does is he bows to the ground. And then he insists that they come back to his house, come back with me and have a wash. He must have offered them a meal, because that's what he prepares for them. But he also says to them, come back and stay overnight with me. And initially they... They say, no, we don't want to do that. We want to stay here in the city square. But he must have kept asking them to come home with him. And so they accept the invitation and they go to his house. And just as they're heading towards bed, all the men, all the men, not just one or two, but all the men, it says, from every part of the city, And later on we also discover it's both young men and old men. All men from every part of the city turn turn up at Lot's door. And they surround his house. And this is where it gets disturbing. Because they order Lot to send out the two visitors because they want to gang rape them. Now Lot steps outside. And he shuts the door behind him and he tries to reason with the mob as a city dignitary who thinks that he's got authority but discovers he's got none. He addresses them as friends which is frightening in itself. Friends? Who needs friends like this? Friends. And then he comes up with what he thinks is a solution to the situation and at this point You discover just how twisted Lot's thinking and moral conscience has become. Because he offers his two daughters, who are still virgins, to this crowd. And here's what he says to them, and I'm just quoting do with them. Do with them what you like. What would possess a father to suggest that? what thankfully for his two daughters sake the crowd won't entertain the proposal and they're just about to break the door down whenever the two visitors reach out grab lot drag him inside slam the door and then they cause all the men young and old to become blind so that they carry, cannot carry out their horrendous intentions Lot now realises that, yes, these are two quite extraordinary men. Because not only can they blind an entire community, but it's what they say next that reveals just how incredible they are. We're up to verse 12. Lot is asked about the rest of his family. And he's urged to get them out of the city because these two angels on God's behalf are about to destroy the place. So Lot goes, it says, and finds his two prospective sons-in-law. And he stresses their need to escape because of the impending destruction and judgment, but they simply laugh in his face. You're a joke, Lot. You see, Lot has little or no influence on anyone, including his own family connection. And you contrast that with Abraham, who in chapter 17 was so respected and so admired by not only his immediate family, but by literally hundreds of other men that they were willing to be circumcised on his advice. Lots of people took what Abraham said seriously. Nobody took what Lot said seriously. And what about us? And maybe this is more directed towards the men in the congregation this morning, but do our families... Do those within our sphere of influence listen, respect, and take seriously what we share about our faith? The specific laughable issue for these two men was Lot's reference to impending destruction. And again, in terms of our context, we probably still find that most people think we're only joking whenever we ever, if we ever do, talk about God's coming judgment it's just a joke dawn is breaking the urgency of the situation is intensifying and so the angels stress the need for Lot and his wife and his two daughters to get out of this place or else you're going to be swept away and so in verse 16 it then says that Lot hesitated what was he thinking? In light of the events of the night before, wouldn't you have thought that Lot would want to get himself and his immediate family out of that place as soon as quickly as possible, especially when he's got two angels to assist him in his escape? But no, it says he lingers. He can't quite bring himself to go. The world is an incredibly attractive place. We know it's messed up. Nobody denies that. And yet its grip and its ability to entice us is extreme. And there are so many people in our culture whose lives are falling apart. And they know something needs to change here. But they appeal and the alluring capacity of the world is so strong that like Lot, they simply hesitate. They just linger. They hold on and they continue down a road that is ultimately leading to destruction. And as Christians, we do find ourselves in places and seasons of compromise. And we know, yes, I need to get out of here. I need to stop that particular habit. I need to curb that interest. I need to avoid that situation. And yet, I hesitate. I'm unable to walk away, I'm unable to turn off, unable to cut the contact, and the result is that it's just damaging my relationship with God. And once again, the angels, they've got to step in here, and so they grab hold of Lot and his wife and his two daughters, and it says they physically lead them out of the city. They're not going to make this choice themselves. They're not going to go themselves. So I'm going to have to grab you and take you out of this situation. And this is an act of divine mercy. But they're given these explicit instructions. I'm going to take you out, but hear this: don't look back. Don't dare look back. And the second instruction: run for the hills, head for the mountains. And when it comes to things in our lives that negatively affect our relationship with God, that's the mindset we simply must adopt. We've got to turn away from it, whatever it is. We've got to ruthlessly deal with it. We need to divert our eyes, and we need to get as far away from some of that stuff as we can. But Lot continues to amaze me because he's still hell bent on doing his own thing and having his own way and so he starts negotiating he doesn't like the instructions and so despite the fact that those instructions are given to him to save his life he asks, tell you what, can I just run to that little town Zor not really that interested in heading for the hills which at face value does seem like a perfectly reasonable request And yet, when you take a step back, you realize that according to verse 21, this town was initially going to be destroyed. But God, in his mercy, and the patience of God is incredible in this story. But God, in his mercy, spares Lot. And here's the point, or here's a point. Zor was obviously another pretty messed up place. And so although Lot is getting away from a major location of compromise, he is getting away from Sodom granted. He still likes the idea of being pretty close to temptation. He can't quite distance himself from a similar environment to Sodom. Okay, I'm out of there, but I'm going to hang around here. It's smaller, but it's similar. And that's what we sometimes tend to do with compromise. We pull back a little, but not totally. We're no longer up to our necks in maybe a particular sin, but we still want or we would like the opportunity to dip in every now and again. And that's what's so dangerous. And incredibly here in this, God lets Lot have his own way. And that's not the first time we meet this idea. You see, you insist on your own way and sometimes God lets you have it. But as ever, there will be repercussions. So the six of them arrive at Zoar, just as the sun has risen, when all of a sudden, and, and I know we, we miss the intensity of this in many ways, but all of a sudden, burning sulfur from heaven begins to rain down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And everything is destroyed. Individual lives and all vegetation on the entire plain are obliterated. And back in chapter 18, Abraham had got God to a point, and I know some of you have shared with me that you actually have struggled with the second half of chapter 18. The whole idea of somebody bargaining with God, like, God, if there's 50, you'll not not wipe it out if there's 50. Tell you what, if there's 40, you'll not wipe it out. What about 30? You'll not do it then, will you? What about 20? Tell you what, let's, let's agree on 10. He bargains with God, and it seems God's up for that. Abraham had got God down to ten. That if at least you find ten righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, please don't wipe it out. But God didn't find ten. In fact, he only found one. And that was Lot. And even he was spiritually all at sea. So God follows through on the promise of judgment and destruction. And one of the key things you learn about God from Scripture is the duality of his patience and his severity. God is long-suffering. He is, but his patience has a limit. And the story of the flood in Genesis 6, another case in point, God's holiness was offended by the immorality that characterized the earth, but he was not quick to execute judgment. God held back for 120 years before the downpour of his wrath. 120 years of an opportunity to get right with God, 120 years of grace, but then 40 days, 40 nights of righteous anger. And God's feelings about sin haven't changed at all. They will not change. They cannot change. God's holy character is still grieved by sin. God cannot and simply never will turn a blind eye to our offensive mindset, our behavior, our attitude that characterized the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. His patience ran its course and he stepped in and he acted and he acted decisively. And he annihilated the unrighteous. And even as I say that, I realize that that may offend or it may deeply disturb some people here this morning. The idea of God annihilating. And yet the judgment of God is a reality. And this for me is why it's Certificate 15 stuff. This is what I find so difficult about this chapter. It's an aspect of the divine character of God that we've got to take seriously. Otherwise, we diminish or we reduce the God of the universe. And the importance of this for us today is eternally significant. Jesus, in, in Luke 17, he referred to To the judgment of God in Noah's day. And those of you who know that text will also know that Jesus referred to the judgment of God in Lot's day. But then he went on to say that a similar day is still coming. A similar day lies ahead. When the judgment of God will fall again. And God is going to step in again, but this time not into specific places. Next time it's going to be the end of the world as we know it. We still live in the day of grace. We still live in between the first and the second advent. We still live in a moment where we can reconnect with God. We can confess our sin. We can begin to walk by faith, embrace truth, experience transformation. But there will come a time when enough's enough. And from God's perspective, all humanity, again, will experience and witness the downpour. Not a sulfur, but the downpour of God's wrath. And as I say, that's the bit of this that I find difficult to talk about. The other stuff is unsettling. It is disturbing, but it's this that I struggle with. God is long-suffering. His patience still holds. But there is a limit. And therefore the urgency, not to run to the hills, but to run into the arms of a loving God. I cannot overemphasize the importance of that. To run into the arms of a loving God. Because the alternative is this. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. And the story then takes another sad twist because although the angels could drag Lot's wife out of Sodom, they couldn't get Sodom out of Lot's wife's heart. And so she does the very thing she's told not to do. She looks back. And apparently in the Hebrew, what that actually means is she looked longingly for the city. And at that moment, Lot's wife became a pillar of salt, a monument to the grip that Sodom's lifestyle had on her. And if we go back or we jump forward to Luke 17, we discover three really important words from the lips of Jesus. Remember Lot's wife. You see, she still needs to stand as a reminder of compromise. It's a kind of mental picture, I believe, that we need to carry around with us so that whenever we are tempted to go back, to mix it up, to disobey God, to somehow get confronted with this graphic image of a woman solidified as a pillar of salt. Don't look back, David. Don't compromise. Hear what I'm saying. Stay focused. And we then cut the story to a different place. Nearly done. Because in verse 27, we're temporarily back with Abraham. He's just got up. And he looks down at the dense smoke that's rising from the land and he realises, you know something? God's judgement has fallen. God hasn't found ten. And in some ways, Abraham is, if you like, standing above the judgement of God and looking down. And that provides a kind of picture, maybe not a great one, but a kind of picture of the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous whenever it comes to the judgement of God. God's way, the path, that Abraham chose leads to life, salvation, rescue and hope. Whereas man's path, the path that those in Sodom and Gomorrah had chosen to follow. It leads to death, destruction, despair. And Abraham is probably anxious about his nephew. What about Lot? But verse 29, it's a brilliant verse. Verse 29 confirms, and it's interesting how it puts It says, God remembered not Lot he remembered Abraham and so he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived you see amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved the wretch like Lot and then the final section of this chapter spirals further down because Lot and the girls leave Zor out of fear. It says, for whatever reason, we're not told why. But they leave Zoar out of fear. They head for the mountains and they take up residence in a cave. And the two girls realise, you know something, there's no men around here to marry. That's because their prospective husbands have been annihilated. and They realise we're, we're not going to marry. There's nobody about here to marry. We're not going to have kids. And so they devise a sick plan to get Lot totally drunk. And to lose their virginity with their dad. And on both occasions, Lot is so drunk that he can't even remember sleeping with his daughters. Can you remember when he lay down with them, or when they got up and went? See, whenever you—and uh, and this is harsh, I you know—whenever you bring kids up within a particular environment and fail to influence them for good, they may become products of that environment. And so these girls' sense of right and wrong was non-existent. And they both discover that they're pregnant. And each of them has a son, Moab and Ammon, the fathers of the Moabites and the Ammonites, who would become two of Israel's greatest enemies. More consequences to accompany bad choices. And the chapter ends, and that's the last glimpse we get of Lot in the Old Testament story. And after a chapter like that, there's two things you have to say. One, the Bible's not boring. Secondly, the Bible doesn't only record the good bits of people's stories. Particularly, and remember, lots a righteous man. It doesn't just record the good bits of righteous people's stories. 2 Peter 2 goes on to say that actually Lot was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard in Sodom and Gomorrah. But you're left, well, if he was so tormented, why didn't he leave? Why didn't he get himself and his family out of that environment? Why did he allow the surrounding culture to influence him to such a level? And all I can conclude is this, that worldliness is not a matter of location. It's a matter of the heart. Lot allowed his heart to get compromised and although he was sickened by what he saw and heard, its appeal and his unwillingness to take a clear stand for holiness left him ineffective as a Christian in a difficult context. We live in a difficult context. The moral maze in 21st century Western societies perplexing. Christian values are generally and increasingly treated with contempt. And when someone who is a Christian does speak up, they just get ridiculed. And although it might be nice, we can't live in a Christian ghetto. Because Jesus, in his prayer in John 17, says to his father, Father, don't take them out of the world But he did plead with his father to protect us within this hostile environment. And I know that at times many of us are sickened by what we see around us. But the challenge we face is to avoid the temptation of blending in and saying nothing. Or to just go with the flow. But when that happens, our heart begins to erode. And we become increasingly desensitized to sin, even our own sin. And the poor choices multiply, the consequences intensify, and before we know it, we're in a place we never intended to be. And I know I've said it from here before, but that's the story of so many people I know. And so my prayer for us this morning is that as a church we would guard against the common chameleon Christians who drift closer and closer to the values of the world. Lot initially camped out in the outskirts, It wasn't long before he was in. It wasn't long before he was off. Don't risk compromise. And if you ever find yourself going in that direction, seek forgiveness, arrest the erosion, recommit your life to God. Remember Lot's wife. But whatever you do, don't forget her husband either. Let's pray. And we're actually going to sing a prayer that hopefully connects in some way to what I've been saying. Purify my heart, God. Let me be as gold and precious silver. Purify my heart. Refiner's fire. My heart's one desire is to be holy. It's to be set apart. It's to be different. Set apart for you, God.